We come to Joshua chapter 9. Our passage this week is a story about deception. The Gibeonites deceive Israel into not killing them. It's a tricky story about trickery. And we'll see that in it there is yet still deep life and deep truth for us. So let's hear God's word, his very words from Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath Yarim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants 
cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God? They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I have a love-hate relationship with board games. Strategy games in particular. I like the thinking and I especially like the winning. Growing up in a house with three boys, we had phases in our lives where Monopoly was prohibited. It was banned because more often than not, with three competitive brothers, the board would end up flipped and the pieces scattered rather than the game completed. Not too long ago, I was playing a really nerdy game. Four to five hours, deep strategy, alliances. It was a grueling game late into the night, and I thought I was headed toward victory, and one of my allies stabbed me in the back. He, he decided to ally with his wife instead, and he, they defeated me so that they could go home and go to bed. Now, I'm embarrassed to admit that when I play board games, I am prone to play my opponents as much as I am to play the strategy of the game. I didn't realize this about myself until my family and my friends continued to complain about it. I didn't realize I was doing it, but they, they said that I often act like I'm losing with no hope and I earn pity and then I slingshot to the victory right at the end. And I've, I've, I've had to ask myself, why do I do this? And I realize it's because I have experienced so many times everybody ganging up on me and I don't like it. I'm trying to avoid everybody joining forces against me. I take it personally. It doesn't feel like it's fair anymore and the game loses its fun. So, yes, I have a love-hate relationship with board games. I would love to sit down and play a game with you. But if y'all gang up on me, I'm not going to love it so much. Israel finds herself in Joshua 9 massively ganged up against. And it's not just that everyone has combined forces to help one person build hotels on Park Place and Boardwalk. No, there's even an enemy who plans deception. And goes about it in a way that's unanticipated. Look at the first two verses here in chapter 9. These first two verses are really an introduction and a setup for the next three chapters of the book of Joshua. They're telling us what's coming up. These battles, these conflicts. And all these kings are now joining forces to attack Israel. And we have to ask, why? Why are they waiting till now? Why didn't they do that before when Israel crossed the Jordan River? Why didn't they do it after Jericho? At that time, the people of the land were described as their hearts were melting before the Lord, terrified. But we're told in verse 2 that they just heard something. And what did they just hear? That Israel had lost to Ai. 
Israel had seen their first defeat. The sin of Achan had done damage to the people. The one man's sin changed the whole perception of these people in the land. Sin has consequences, just like the well-known sin of a single pastor or a single church member brings destruction and shame on a church even today. The Gibeonites here in this passage, in contrast with the other peoples, they're taking a different tack. They try not to oppose Israel on the battlefield, but they're sneaking up. Israel has enemies on all sides here. Verse 4 tells us that the Gibeonites, on their part, acted with cunning. So as we look at our story today, verses 3 through the end of the chapter, we're going to look at it first as the deception, second, the dilemma, third, the curse, and fourth, the compassion. The deception, the dilemma, the curse, and the compassion. We see the deception in verses 3 through 13. And what we see here as we look at the deceit that Gibeon brought against Israel, we see man's ways are not God's ways. Trickery is not a replacement for true faith. Why are the Gibeonites Gibeonites coming to Israel this way? Why are they coming deceitfully? Why are they pretending to be from a distant land, although they live just a few miles down the road? It's a couple of reasons. First, they knew that Israel was commanded to destroy all their enemies, that is, the enemies of God. They're told to do so in Deuteronomy 7, and they're supposed to do it so that the land, the promised land, would be purified of idolatry and false worship, so that Israel would not be assimilated into these godless pagan practices in the land. It's to preserve the glory of God's holy name in this land. And Gibeon knew that they, like Jericho, and like I the second time that they were attacked, would be destroyed. Because the Gibeonites are Hivites. They're a group of the Hivites that live specifically in Gibeon and its surrounding cities. And the Hivites are specifically named in Deuteronomy as those who are to be destroyed. They knew that the hand of the Lord would come against them. But they also knew that Israel was allowed to make peace with people who were from distant lands. So they saw this as their their chance. If we can pretend like we're from somewhere else, then Israel will make peace with us and we won't be obliterated. Maybe we can convince them that we're not from right down the road. And sure enough, we read in verse 24 toward the end of the chapter, Joshua comes to them and says, why did you do this? They answer, honestly, they say, because we heard. It was told to your servants for certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. They're operating out of fear. And so they deceive the Israelites. And they did come up with quite a masterful, convincing deception. They thought of everything. And they gathered worn out clothes. They had food that was long past its expiration date. And they even found old wineskins. And these weren't mediocre costumes with stage makeup. They had every detail figured out. And they corroborated on their story, too. And it's quite a tricky story. If you look in verses 9 and 10, why is it that they have come? They say, we've heard a report of the Lord your God and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. But they've omitted two stories. The most recent ones. 
Because if they truly were from a distant land, they would not have come hearing about the most recent stories. They're very tricky. They're telling the old stories that draw them to the land. And they've convinced the leaders of Israel. And they also flatter Israel. Verse 9. We come from a very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We've heard a report of him. And the Israelites start to think, oh, how about that? We, have, we are known across the world. Everybody's hearing about us now. The Gibeonites here, by their own efforts, were asking for a covenant relationship with God's people, and therefore, by implication, with their God. And they duped the leaders of Israel for three days. As far as humanistic religion goes, they came as close as anybody to saving themselves. And the rest of the religions in this world will tell you that your job is to be better and climb higher and to be smarter so that you might earn your way to God one day. The Gibeonites come, have come as close as any. But we have to note that they're coming to God for the wrong reasons. First of all, they come deceitfully. They come based on trickery. They come based on lies. They come based on cunning. But we know they can never trick God. God sees past these human schemes. And unfortunately, even today, some people are so good at hiding their intentions and, and so good at saying the right words that they've deceived Christians and church leaders. They can convince the whole congregation that they have come sincerely to God. And they might be members in God's church, but they might be chaff among wheat. But they cannot trick God. On that last day, all things will be laid bare. The Gibeonites also come fearfully. They're afraid of destruction. They want their get-out-of-hell-free card, to use yet another Monopoly reference. Note how there's no mention of the forgiveness of sins. There's no address of the real problem that keeps them away from God. Do they even grieve over their sin and their offense to the holy God? Now, to be fair, our passage does not give us great detail about the sincerity of the Gibeonites. And so we can't know their hearts with certainty. But from what we know, it seems that they have missed the gospel. They have come on false pretenses. They've missed the fact that to approach God is always to come to God by His grace and through faith, not by our works, not by our impressive deeds or our cunning. We come with an honest confession of our unworthiness, of our brokenness, of our need, and we come to receive what God has done on our behalf. If you've never come to God honestly, if you find yourself among the covenant people of God here in this church, but you've never actually come and opened up everything to him, if you've never come desperate for his work to be credited to you, then I urge you, come now. Open up your heart to our God. Appeal to his grace. Don't appeal to your trickery or, or your manipulation or your deception or your acting skills or your false testimony anymore. Grace is a gift for people who admit they can't figure it out themselves. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. 
had Gibeon come this way, they may have been welcomed. Because in the commands to take the land of Deuteronomy, it was they were told to make peace. And if they would not make peace, if they would not submit to God, they are to be destroyed. Maybe they would have been welcomed like Rahab was in chapter 2, who did have true faith. And she was spared in the midst of the destruction of Jericho. Or maybe they would have been saved like the other sojourners who had joined them in the covenant renewal chapter that we just read last week, leading right up to chapter 9. The Gibeonites missed the whole point of grace, the whole point of the gospel, that it's entered by faith. But you and I are invited to trust in Jesus and to trust in what he did entirely based on faith alone. Jesus is enough, plus no merit of your own. He paid it all. Don't miss this gospel. This is good news. Man's ways are not God's ways. Deceit does not replace true faith. That's the deception. Let's look at the dilemma that Israel finds itself in, in verses 14 through 20. The dilemma You may remember that the book of Joshua comes right after the first five books of the Bible. The first five books are called the law. And then we enter into the part of the Old Testament where we look at Israel as they live in the covenant. The history of the covenant. What does it look like to live in relationship to God? And so here in Joshua, we expect them to live in obedience to the law that the first five books lay out. We expect them to understand, after all, God has given them another chance. We expect to find... People, these, these Israelites, these people under Joshua's leadership who have seen victories and who have renewed a covenant with the Lord to start to get it. They just finished that ceremony at the end of chapter 8. And we would anticipate that they figured out how to be committed to their God. But they immediately forgot. Immediately forgot. God had given them specific instructions for how to receive guidance and discernment from him. He had told them, go to Eleazar the priest. He had given Eleazar a means by casting lots of a sort to discern what God would have them do, but they didn't take advantage of that. Although God had provided them a specific avenue for wisdom, they didn't take it. Now, remember, Israel's leaders were probably feeling pretty good about the fact that they're famous across the world. And they might have lost sight of the source of truth. The source of truth is God. The source of truth is his word and his means that he's given to us to draw near to him and to seek wisdom. And so what did they resort to? They resorted to their human powers of intellect and they were thorough. Joshua even asked, what if you're from among our people? And then they examined the provisions. They looked at them and they inspected them. And they were duped because human wisdom is not infallible. They should have sought the Lord. Look at verse 14. So the men, speaking of Israel, the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. There is the condemning accusation in this passage. It makes sense. If you come to an intersection and you're not quite sure where you need to go in life, you pray and you ask for help when you don't know what to do. But what about when you think you do know what to do? What about when it it seems like everything's going fine and I can just keep going according to my own wisdom? Do you ask for help then? 
Seek the Lord when things don't make sense and seek the Lord when things do make sense. Spurgeon said, the devil is not afraid of a dust-covered Bible. If we're not those who are seeking God's guidance and His Word regularly, Satan's not afraid of that. This is a sin of omission. There's sins of commission, things that you commit, things active, things that you do wrong, and there are sins of omission, things that you fail to do that are equally damning. And so Israel should have sought the Lord. They too have missed the fullness of the gospel. They've missed all the grace that God has given them access to as they live in covenant with Him. Believers are to live prayerfully without ceasing. We're never to act by our own understanding. We're in all our ways to acknowledge Him because we've been given the Spirit. As God told Joshua in chapter 1, obey the Word, be in the Word always, meditate on it. Reflect on it. Don't stray from it to the right or to the left. Just keeping on, keeping on with life, doing what seems good to you with everything going just fine is a sin. If it's not done in faith, it's a sin. So Israel committing that sin created a messy dilemma. They were under God's covenant oath to obey by eliminating all the godlessness and the idolatry in the land. Yet also they had just created a covenant oath under God's name to save alive the Gibeonites. And we today look back and we say, well, why didn't they just back out? Well, first of all, it's because the power of the word given was understood by them in a way that we don't understand. We don't care so much about the, the strength of our word or the honor of our word. But also, they acknowledged that if they broke this oath in, in verse 20, if we do not let them live, wrath will be upon us because of the oath that they swore to them. And this comes, at least in part, from the fact that this oath was made in the name of the Lord their God. They swore in the name of their God. The glory and the honor of God was at stake with their keeping of their word to the Gibeonites. If they went back on their covenant three days later when they found out that this was a fake, it would reflect poorly on the character of their God by whom they swore. Israel, therefore, repented and sought the Lord. And they did pursue faithfulness to live in that tension that they had created, the brokenness that sin had caused. They sought to be as faithful as they could to all. And one thing that we should take away from this is that two wrongs don't make a right. Just because they made a bad oath in the name of the Lord doesn't mean that to break it would be the right thing. Two wrongs don't make a right. Sometimes we have to face the consequences of the brokenness we've created and live faithfully in it. Now, the people of Israel grumbled. This is one instance in the Bible where their grumbling is not described in negative terms. It's stated. And this is one instance where I finally get it. I'm like, yeah. I, I probably would, would have wanted to grumble too that our leaders had made such a careless, thoughtless uh, decision without seeking the Lord. And although they have identified a legitimate deficiency in the purity and the integrity of their leaders, they've gone about addressing it, unfortunately, in the wrong way. They grumbled, they complained, they murmured. Instead, their proper response, as one of my insightful pastor friends, Cliff, said about this instance, he says that, while the people see their leaders stuck in a dilemma caused by their sin, their most faithful response would be 
to pray for them. Not to grumble against them, to pray for them. And Hebrews 13 even says, verse 17 in, in some, it says, don't complain. And then in verse 18, it says, but instead pray for us, for we desire to conduct ourselves rightly in every respect. So, for you and for me today, what, what does this mean? Renew your trust in Him again today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Even when things seem to be going fine, even when you don't think you need guidance from the Lord, even when it's not a critical juncture where you're on your knees begging for clarity. When things don't make sense, seek His wisdom. When things do make sense, seek God's wisdom. Do it humbly through prayer and through the Word, which is, this is our access to deep wisdom and truth. Pray without ceasing. Drink from the water of life always. Be in such communication and communion with God through His Word and prayer that you're like an old man who's been married for 65 years and when his friends ask him if he can come to dinner on Thursday night, he doesn't check his schedule. It doesn't matter. He checks with his wife. Would we be those who go to our God and ask for godly wisdom rather than earthly wisdom? And second, I speak to members of Christ Presbyterian Church. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the elders of this church. Pray for me that we would be those who humbly seek the Lord for every step. That we would not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways, we would acknowledge Him. We are sinful, flawed people. We need your prayers. May it never be said of any one of us what verse 14 says, that they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's the deception and that's the dilemma. Let's look at the curse. The curse comes in verses 21 through 25. We see as we look at the curse here that sin has consequences. Gibeon received consequences for their sin. Israel received consequences for their sin as well. But the Gibeonite existence in Israel was based upon deception and it was based upon cunning, as we see in verse 4. And some might say, well, at least they tried. At least they were barking up the right tree. Their hearts were at least kind of in the right place, trying to avoid destruction. So they're good, right? No, they're cursed, verse 23 says, for their sin. Remember, they have as of yet not sought nor received forgiveness for a solution to their deepest need, their sin. They're only trying to save their own skin. The Gibeonite existence in Israel was cursed because they ended up living their lives under difficult labor as servants, as peasants, as the lowest of the low in complete submission as those who cut wood and draw water. Heavy, difficult, menial tasks. Joshua says in verse 23 with the curse, Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. There is one word in there that is tragic. My God. That implies that there's this distance between them and this God of promise and covenant because they have not sought Him. 
They have not sought forgiveness. They have only tried to save themselves. Verse 27 says, In summary, Joshua made them cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. To this day is a really important phrase. It reminds Israel of their own sin, saying, Israel, look, that's why there are people who are cutting your wood and drawing your water. Because you failed to seek the Lord. You have to live with the mess you've made. And so the Gibeonites being among them to this day is a type of memorial, calling Israel to faithfulness every day. But this phrase also contrasts with Rahab's inclusion into Israel because in chapter 6 it says that Rahab has lived in Israel to this day. A very different existence. She and her family, by faith, were welcomed into the covenant community of blessing. Gibeonites, however, were living before God in deception and lies and they live in constant fear of being struck down for their disobedience. But all who live before God in faith live as sons and daughters, as heirs of promise, without fear of being struck down. Romans 8 tells us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have, been, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He is your God, if you come to him by faith. Now, we would expect to see a distinction here between Israel and Gibeon and the effects of their sin. Israel is still living with the consequences of their sin. Gibeon is still living with the consequences of their sin. Now, it makes sense Gibeon would live with the consequences of their sin, but we assume that Israel, since their sins are forgiven and that that sacrifice once and for all that would come in Christ, we assume that they wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of their sin. We, too, assume that if our sins are forgiven by Jesus, that there's no consequence anymore for them, but that's simply not true. We can be forgiven before God and be at peace with Him in the deepest and most important and eternal ways, yet continue, for as long as we live in this world, to see the effects of sin and the effects of our sin. You might be forgiven before God for committing adultery, and His grace is that big but your relationship with your family might remain tattered until that final day. And you may be forgiven before God for your sexual addictions, and His grace is that big. But the way that you view your spouse might be skewed until the new creation. And you may be forgiven before God for your workaholism, and God's grace is that big. But your life and your children might still bear the consequence of a disordered life. And you may be forgiven before God for misuse of a substance. And God's grace is that big. But your relationships with everyone around you might still crumble because of the hurt you've caused. King David is a great example of one chosen by God, author of many psalms. His sins are forgiven in Christ. He's in God's presence now in glory. But he sinned by committing adultery and murdering. He sinned. In various other ways, not trusting the Lord and God chose that David would face the consequences of his sin, some of them until his last day. When we sin, we create a mess. And Jesus takes the eternal consequences of it and the second death will never have power over us. But sometimes God knows 
that the best way to discipline his children is by choosing to let us live in the mess we've made. So that one day we'll be able to see how much, see so much more greatly how much Christ has done for us because on that last day, when there are no more tears, nor death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, where the consequences of sin are finally eradicated, we'll see how much more magnificent it is what Christ has done for us. But for now, we see in this curse that sin has consequences. And last, we turn to the compassion. The compassion we see in verses 26 and 27. The Gibeonites went to Israel out of fear of judgment. They went with deception. But by God's sovereignty, he met them with mercy. God met them with mercy rather than eliminating them, and they were allowed to live upon the earth. And I'm not going to speculate that a certain number of Gibeonites ended up trusting God. We're not told. I don't know if it was a minority, majority, if it was any, if it was all. We don't know how many became sincere believers like Rahab. The text doesn't tell us, but we do see some crucial elements of God's compassion. And so I I end this sermon looking at God's compassion. Thanks again to my pastor friend, Cliff, um, because we see what happens to the Gibeonites here and later in the Old Testament. First of all, in our passage here, Israel, you may have noticed, Israel went up against the cities of the Gibeonites to attack them. And Joshua actually withheld them because of the covenant. So Joshua spared them, and he's going to rescue them from the other nations in chapter 10. And we see in chapter, in verse 27, where were they serving? They were cutters of wood. They were drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. The altar of the Lord. This is where man meets God. The Gibeonites were welcomed into the very place where God comes down to be with his people. They were given the chance to draw near to Yahweh as they served in his house. Psalm 84 tells us, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The Gibeonites were met with mercy and with blessing to be drawn near to Yahweh. And if we look forward over in Chronicles and Kings, we see that David placed the tabernacle there in Gibeon. And Solomon offered burnt offerings there, and the Lord appeared to Solomon. God showed himself there in the land of Gibeon. But I think one of the most hopeful lines in this entire chapter is the very last one. In the place that he should choose. The Gibeonites served in the place that God chose. And the place that God chose is not a high place where the Asherah pole is. The place that God chose is a place of worship according to God's commands. A place of proper worship. Deuteronomy 12 says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in the way of idolatry, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. God remains jealous for proper worship. He doesn't just want you to worship him. He wants you to worship him properly. 
And God graciously allowed the Gibeonites to be exposed to proper worship in his house where there is not idol worship. In the service to his glory in the place that he should choose. You and I are given great blessing. We are commanded in God's word to worship him and we are told how to worship him. And so it's a great blessing that you and I are here right now. We get access to this place where God meets with his people in such a blessed way. We come to God's word. We come to his sacraments. We come by the help of the spirit and the community of believers. And we come by faith. And here as we gather in God's house, this is a place of growth and of strengthening, a place where God draws near and where God makes us like himself. It's a place of blessing. Did Gibeon see the blessing and receive the blessing? I can't tell you whether they did or whether they did in great numbers. But we do know that after the exile, in Nehemiah chapter 3 and in Nehemiah chapter 7, Israel returned to the land with the Gibeonites to rebuild the temple. Implicit in that is this blessing that some of these Gibeonites received blessing, though they were cursed. Shows that our God is a God who redeems from death, who gives life to those who don't deserve it. Are you in the church on the foundation of false pretenses? Are you deceiving yourself and trying to deceive others into thinking that you're in good terms with God because of what you've done? Have you somehow snuck your way into the covenant community simply because you're trying to escape hell? Have you missed the gospel the first hundred times? Don't miss it right now. The gospel is offered in this house. Although there is a curse for everyone who disobeys the law of God and the stipulations of his covenant, even if you're the most impressive conniver and schemer and can dupe the smartest of people, even if you're the best sinner out there, yet the wisdom of God will not bend under your deceit. Here's the good news. This is the point. God redeems sinners from the curse of the law. Through faith in Jesus. Jesus has done it. Jesus did what the leaders of Israel didn't do. He lived in perfect communion and submission to his father. He prayed without ceasing. He always sought the father. Yet he was punished as a conniver and as a schemer. He's the gate. And no true believer enters salvation except through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. There's no back door. There's no climbing over the wall. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Praise the Lord for this truth. We're about to prepare to come and to see that sacrifice. And what it was, was God who became man in full humanity, in full divinity, He lived perfectly. He kept all the requirements of the law. He did all the covenant stipulations on behalf of Israel. And he died a cursed death because of all all the sins of all God's people were put on him. 
And now those sins are no longer counted against us. If you trust in Jesus, your sins are never held against you. Though we may continue to live with consequences temporally, eternally you are given life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Believe in him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, for this good news, for this gospel truth. We thank you that even as we know the deceit in our hearts, we know by faith, that we are given life in Jesus. Would you help us to live in it, to live in constant communion with you, to pray without ceasing, to live with access to the grace of our God that you have given to us in the gospel. Help us not to forget. Help us to be eager and diligent. And help us to rest in what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.